Well, good morning, church family. It is so good to see you after being away for a little while. I come this morning bringing warm greetings from Sweden. So many of you will know that my wife and I were over there visiting some supportive workers, Johnny and Anna Littell, for the past 12 days or so, and uh, actually got back in yesterday. Um, so if at some point I peter out, you know why. I'm really not sure what time it is. But it's great to be with you. And I wish I could greet you in Swedish, but one of the things I learned along the way is I can't pronounce one word in that language. If you've been there, maybe you know what I mean. Uh, praise God, they all speak English, which is really humbling in a different way. How many other cultures speak our language and we can't speak theirs? But uh, I just don't have Griffiths gift for linguistics. But at any rate, uh, Johnny and Anna just wanted to make sure that I expressed to you their heartfelt thanks, again, for the, for the prayers of this body, for the financial support of this body, for the resources we've sent to them and trying to bless and assist them as a church, uh, really for also just the willingness for this congregation to free myself and Aaron up so that we can head on over there and try to be a blessing in them and invest in them and try to encourage them. So I had the opportunity to give uh, a number of talks uh, at a national conference that Johnny was hosting. Uh, my wife and I were able to do a panel together on marriage. She was able to meet with a lot of the pastor's wives who had gathered. I was able to meet with pastors from around the country uh, we, uh, we got to spend lots of time with Johnny and Anna one-on-one -on -one and their kids, right? Talking about local church, talking about life, about ministry, about challenges, about opportunities, about the future for them there in Sweden. So it was fascinating. It was often fun. It was always full and a little exhausting, but so encouraging. And I'm going to share more at our next Sunday night service. So maybe that's an encouragement to come along. But one of the things that struck me about our time in Sweden was that there were, there were churches everywhere. Everywhere you looked, you could find, it seemed, a church. So Sweden had a state church up until about 25 years ago, which means that even in the smallest rural communities, you would still find these beautiful brick Lutheran buildings with, with gorgeous stained glass and with these imposing Gothic spires that reached up into the skies. So while there are churches everywhere, the, the issue is there's nobody in them. And I literally mean nobody. Most of them are locked up. They are never open. So Johnny found one of those churches to rent every Sunday because there were literally no congregants in that entire community that would come. Christianity is all but extinct in Sweden. Which begs the question, I think. What makes Christianity attractive? What makes Christianity attractive? So we're on, as a country, the same trajectory as Sweden. And I trust if you're a Christian, if you're listening to my voice, you lament that, you're concerned about that. So what will draw those outside the church into church? How can we make Christianity more appealing to the masses what will make our gospel more inviting, even irresistible, to those outside the church? Now, back in the 90s, all the church growth gurus, right, they would have said things like, well, what you need is a, is a welcoming first experience. You need clear signage. right? You need clean bathrooms. You need engaging music. And you need practical, engaging messages, preferably on the shorter side. 
Don't draw distinctions, they would say, between insiders and outsiders. Make everyone welcome and feel at home because if they feel like they belong, then that may well lead to belief. That was the thought. But in the missional church movement of the 2000s, all right, they would highlight other things like social justice through after-school tutoring programs or urban renewal or fair trade coffee or abolishing sex trafficking or slavery, whatever it might be. But again, I just want to pose this opening question. As the sun continues to set on Christianity in the West, what, if anything, could cause it to rise again? What exactly makes Christianity attractive? That's the question I want you to have in your minds as we look back in our study to the book of Titus. Let me encourage you to turn there now. Titus chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 10, which you can find if you would like to use one of the red Bibles in the seat back before you, you can find on page 998, page 998. Now, I recognize we've been out of Titus for a few weeks, so just to bring us up to speed, or maybe you're visiting just to help you understand the context a bit, it appears that a, a young Christian community had formed on the Mediterranean island of Crete, and it was a rather, though, bankrupt, morally bankrupt kind of Christian community, and that's what part of what Paul's highlighting in the opening chapter, and, and he's not saying, hey, take my word for it. He actually quotes in chapter one a famous uh, Cretan philosopher who referred to Cretans as, what did he call them, verse, uh, verse, verse 12. Cretans are always, always what? They're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And so Paul sends Titus, who is a Greek and his spiritual son in the faith, there to complete some unfinished business on the island of Crete. And item number one is what? It's to establish elders who will, in the words of Titus 1.9, give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And we see the reason why Titus needs to do this because we learn in chapter 1 verse 10 that there are false teachers there among them who need to be silenced. Their teaching is spreading like a cancer in the community. And though they profess to know God, 1.16, they what? Deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So you could say these false teachers are making the gospel deeply unattractive. So what's Paul's call to these congregations in Crete? What's his church growth strategy, if you will? How are they to make the gospel attractive, even compelling? Look down at me, chapter 2, verse 1. Follow along as I read. Paul writes to Titus, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with dignified doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 
Likewise, urges the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. All right, so what makes Christianity attractive, even compelling? Well, Paul's answer is not exactly what we would expect, is it? It's not the kind of thing you're going to read in church growth literature. If we're to sum up, I think, Paul's argument in 2, 1 to 10, in one sentence, we could do it like this. Countercultural community is compelling community. You know, to sum it up, and you say it like that, countercultural community, Paul says, that is compelling community. And so I'd like just to break that apart, and I want us to think first about what makes our community countercultural, and I want us to think secondly about what makes our community therefore compelling. All right, so those will serve as our two points, and just as a heads up, point one is much longer than point two, so don't fret, all right? All right, so first, what makes our community countercultural? What makes our community countercultural? Well, first, notice how Paul says it's grounded in doctrine. So notice how the passage both begins and ends. It begins, chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, again referring to Titus, teach what accords or, or teach what is consistent with what? With sound doctrine. Now, Titus is to do, is to do therefore, the very thing that the elders were called to do back in 1.9, right? Instruct in sound doctrine. And yet also look to the end, chapter 2, verse 10. Bond servants, right, are to behave in the particular ways expressed so that in everything, end of verse 10, they may what? They may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So notice how that concern for doctrine bookends the section, both in verse 1 and in verse 10. And what makes this countercultural, it may not strike us as so, um, but in the Greco-Roman world, they didn't prize doctrine. They didn't prize written texts. Right? There were no official scriptures in the Greco-Roman world. Religion was all about ceremony. It had nothing to do with a sacred text. It valued performance. It valued forms. It didn't speak of a particular profession of faith, a body of doctrine, a body of belief. Now, maybe you've heard that expression that uh, God says it, right? I believe it, and that settles it. God says it, I believe it, that settles it. Which is actually, in some ways, not the best expression because, honestly, whether or not we believe what God says... Well, that doesn't mean it's therefore settled, right? We should just say, God said it, that settles it, right? Our belief is secondary. But nonetheless, you get the point. In either way, right, that notion would have been countercultural in Titus's day, and it's countercultural in our day. The idea that God has revealed himself in words, right, in a sacred text, that the Bible itself alone is God's word, that 
It is inerrant, that it is infallible, it is fully sufficient, it is authoritative in all things for, for life and for godliness. Right? That right there pro- provokes the world's mockery, the world's scorn. They will laugh you right out of the academy if you sit there and say, I believe this because the Bible says so. But friends, that's what Christians believe. That's what we believe. Which means the question every Christian generation has to face is will we be shaped more by secular culture or more by sacred scripture? Always the, gener- the question every generation has to face. Because a Christian life is built around biblical doctrine. And not, as we're going to see, not just the cognitive side of doctrine, but the behavioral as well. Right? It's sound doctrine. That word for sound just means healthy. That which promotes life and vitality, that which promotes relational and spiritual health. And Paul turns and gets deeply into how our doctrine is lived out before the lives of others. And notice Paul specifically moves on to discuss the respective genders and their roles. So older men in verse 2, and then older women in verses 3 and 4, and then he goes to younger women in verses 4 and 5, and then younger men in verse 6, and likely thinking about younger men and Titus probably being a younger man, he therefore thinks from younger men of Titus, and he makes some comments about how Titus is to model right what others are to mature into in verses 7 and 8. And then he flips in verses 9 and 10 and talks about bond servants. They're the one group not sort of noted by gender and by age. Perhaps there was a pressing issue there in Crete, and Paul felt he just had it to put this in as well. We don't finally know. But not only is countercultural community grounded in doctrine, but notice throughout our passage, it's also grounded in gender distinctives. Not just doctrine, but gender distinctives. And here's where so much of society, whether it's the academy, media, politics, that right there is what they're all desperately seeking to undo. That there are any meaningful distinctions we can talk about between men and women. So today, culture says everything a man does, a woman should be able to do, and vice versa. Whether or not it's the simple act of a man holding a woman's door, which some would find offensive, to the military draft, where it's argued that if women have the right to serve in combat like men, they therefore also must have the duty to serve in combat just like men. So our culture is all about equality, about equity, removing any of these gender distinctions. But it's not just the roles even in culture, right? It's the very idea that gender is binary, that we can speak of male and female, men and women. So I just read yesterday that in Portland, Oregon, the Office of Equity and Human Rights has called for all of the state's material to be purged of any language that references women. So replacing pregnant women with pregnant people to be inclusive, quote, of those who have the experience of pregnancy but do not identify as a woman. Instead of saying women's rights, you're to say reproductive rights. Instead of feminine hygiene products, you're supposed to say menstrual products. Instead of breastfeeding, you're to say chest feeding. That's the world, friends, we increasingly inhabit, which makes verses 2, 1 to 10... It makes it sound strange, crazy, weird, even offensive to so many. 
But notice that while the Bible assumes men and women are equal in terms of value and dignity and worth, Genesis 1, though they are equal, they are not interchangeable, Genesis 2. Equal but not interchangeable. Both in our age, Paul's going to say, and then also in our genders, men and women are to express themselves differently in relationships of complementarity. So let's look at some of these differences that Paul highlights. And isn't it interesting where Paul starts? Where does he begin? With older men and with older women. Which, let's be honest, this is probably not where our society would start. As a society, we increasingly, what we cherish, we even infantilize youth. It's not the old and the wise. We don't celebrate them as a culture so much as the the young, the bold, the brash, the impetuous. Those are the folks we tend to hold up. Many careers today are only for the young. You can think of influencers. How many of you have come across a 70-year-old influencer on social media? Probably haven't. All right, maybe someone can give it a shot, but yeah, whether you're an influencer, whether you're an athlete, whether or not you're a model, whether or not you're a rap artist, don't find many of those that are very old. Whether or not you are an actress, we can be tempted to think that as we age, we have less to contribute. We have less to offer society and the world. But to all the older men and all the older women in the room, Paul says that notion is complete and utter nonsense. That is simply silly. Paul says in the Christian life, we never age out. We never step out, take a time out. Your life matters, and it's not meant to be lived on the sidelines. Paul begins with older men and women because he recognizes the unique value that they offer and the unique role that they play in the life of the body. So beginning with older men, what does he say? Verse 2, they're to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. And some of that sounds familiar. It's because it's actually consistent with many of the things that an elder is to be from 1 Timothy 3, such that elderly men, in terms of age, are to model elder-like behavior in terms of office. And maybe Paul lists these in particular because he recognizes different seasons breed different kinds of temptations. So one of the things I've noticed about myself is that as I age, I have to watch impatience in my own heart, especially when it comes to incompetence. Right? My fuse tends to be a little short on that one. So traveling home, we had the joy of flying back with Lufthansa, uh, and it wasn't such a joy. Ran into problems in Munich, ran into problems in Chicago. It's why I got back yesterday and not on Friday. Uh, And so I know we all talk about German efficiency, but it was like I was back in Italy. All right. Um, (laughs) I wasn't in my notes. I probably, sorry, Italians. All right. At any rate. After 20 hours of travel, sitting in Chicago, my wife and I, and, and we're getting nowhere with the folks at the desk, and my impatience with their incompetence became wrongly evident. I'll just say it like that. For while they were, in my opinion, being anything but helpful, right, that right there, though, in and of itself didn't justify my own frustrations, the manner in which I spoke to them, 
right, which my wife had to kindly point out and I had to go back and repent of it, right? I did not act in a reasoned, dignified, and restrained way as an older man ought to. And the risk I think we can face as men who get older is that we, what, we can become grumpy, we can become cynical, we can pick arguments, we might be reluctant to give ourselves in service. And Paul's saying, hey, listen, it shouldn't be like that. Shouldn't be like that. Older men are to exhibit dignity and maturity and integrity and purity of life. And that's meant to be lived out in the midst of the congregation. There ought to be a, a kind of gravitas, right, around an older man. The way in which they hold fixed and firm in the faith. The way in which they don't lose heart. They don't throw in the towel. They don't drop out of the race. They endure. Older men ought to live in such a way that young guys look at them and say, I ought to be like that. I want to be like that. You don't want them saying, I hope I never become like that. Well, Paul's going to turn to older women in verses 3 and 4, and notice what he says about them. They're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So they're to be reverent in their way and also show restraint, notice, with their words. So not slandering, not speaking ill of others. They're to show restraint as well when it comes to wine. And we know from Epitaphs in Crete that the the Cretans, they prized drunkenness. They celebrated it, considered it a virtue, much like, sadly, many fraternities and sororities do. And maybe with women being more in the home and maybe alcohol being there in the home and the greater access perhaps led to greater temptations, we're not really sure. Of course, drunkenness, being addicted to wine is going to be an issue that's going to be raised amongst elders as well. But they're to possess, these older women are, a kind of dignity, a kind of sobriety, a kind of respectability. And they're not just to be something. Notice these older women, they're also to do something. They're to what? They're to teach what is good. So the Bible expects that women are teaching. They're to be competent instructors in doctrine and in the word. And of whom specifically, Paul says, specifically of younger women. By their teaching, they're to train, notice younger women, verse 4, to what? To love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Now, many outside the church, even some of us inside the church, right, those verses read like nails across a chalkboard. For notice how much of what Paul says deals with a woman's relationship to her husband and to her home. There seems to be, beginning all the way back in Genesis 2, a general orientation of the woman to her husband and to her home, right? We see it here. We see it in Ephesians 5. You can see it in Colossians 3. You see it in 1 Peter 3. And yet our culture despises the domestic life. The home is often presented as as a kind of prison that must be escaped. And we tend to define people how? By what they do, especially by their careers. And so if a woman doesn't have a career outside the home, then many think of her as as a kind of nobody, and she can feel like a nobody. But the gospel defines things very differently. 
We're not somebody because of our job. We are somebody because of what? Because of Jesus. It's our identity in him that makes all the difference. And friends, that's what 2, 11 to 14 that we're getting into next. That's what that's all going to be about. But Paul doesn't jump there yet. Notice younger women are to what? They're to love their husbands and children. Interestingly, this is the only time in the, in the New Testament that wives are commanded to love their husbands. Now, that's not to suggest it was unusual. We shouldn't be shocked because one of the most uh, persistent commands in the New Testament is of the Christian to love. But it's also important because in marriage, one of the things we all realize is that we don't just fall in love. We need to learn how to love. We don't just fall into it. We do need to also learn how to love. And given many of the ways that husbands can fail, right, that can be hard as a young wife. Notice they're also to be what? Pure and working at home. Now, that expression, working at home, I don't think that means that a woman can't work a paid job outside the home. So think again of Proverbs 31, right? That woman in Proverbs 31 excelled in business outside the home. She was buying and selling real estate. She was raking in profits, right? She would present some great competition to the Waltons. That's the sense you get when you read Proverbs 31. And yet, all that work outside the home never came at the expense of her home and family. So notice even in Proverbs 31, her husband doesn't grumble and resent the fact that his wife is never around, that they can never get time together, that she's always working, but rather he rises up and he calls her blessed. So to be working at home, that's not just to counter the temptation to be lazy, though that that is true, we shouldn't be lazy, I think Paul specifically mentions this working at home to counter the temptation not just to be lazy but to be over busy elsewhere. To look for a life beyond the life that God has given you. So it's not to be seduced by the sirens of modernity who says that a woman's wasting her time and all of her talents if she doesn't use it outside the home. And that it's only in a career outside the home, where you can really make your mark as a woman. Which begs the question, do we value, even extol, this kind of life presented in verses 3 and 4 for, for women? Do we, do we extol it? Do we cherish it? Or do we try to hide from it? Do we try and explain it away? I wonder, men, do you seek to positively build women up in this kind of life? Husbands, do you encourage your wives when you see her excel in these things? Do you thank them for the incredible role they have to play? Do you show them the same honor that they give in the home and the same honor and attention that you would show to them if they got a great promotion at work? Because if we don't build into them and if we don't build them up, friends, the culture certainly won't. They need it in here. They need it from us. But notice older women, this is especially what God asks of you to do 
to teach and to train the younger women. It's the only thing that is, I mean, of course, Titus will do it, right, as he teaches, but they are specifically to do it, older women for younger women. They're to help train and instill these things, which means if you're an older woman, you need to make yourself available. You need to have eyes and ears for how you can train up others in these things. And it means if you're a younger woman, you need to be willing to, to listen, You need to be willing to learn from those older saints who have gone before you. Now, when it comes to young men, Paul lists just one thing, self-control. Maybe because he realizes men can only focus on one thing at a time. I don't know. Maybe because he realizes they have limited attention spans. I don't know. Maybe it's because he knows so many of the temptations young men face center around what? Around self-control. Think of lust. Think of ambition, of, of avarice. Think of control of the temper and tongue, right? All of that requires what? Self-control among young men. And I'm going to come back to self-control in just a moment. But notice immediately how Paul moves from young men to Titus himself, verse 7. Again, likely because Titus was probably a young man. And he was to be a kind of type, a model, a mold that these young men were to sort of be fashioned into. And as a church leader alongside the older men, Titus in that sense was to point the way for them. And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul moves on and talks of bondservants or slaves. And we read what? Verse 9, they're to be well-pleasing Not argumentative, not pilfering as in stealing, but showing all good faith. Now the challenge can come when we hear those words, bondservants or slaves. Uh, We immediately think of the kind of horrors and atrocities of our own race-based slavery here in America. Where men and women were, were bartered and sold much like beasts and animals. But slavery in the greco roman world was actually quite different than what we knew tragically here in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. So slavery in the Greco-Roman world wasn't about ethnicity. No, in fact, there was no race-based slavery really in the ancient world. Every ethnicity, it didn't matter the color of your skin, could be sold or taken into or even volunteer themselves for slavery. Your ethnicity in that sense didn't uniquely single you out. But it wasn't just not about ethnicity. It was also temporary. So most every slave could count on manumission, right, being set free. 50% were by the time they were 30. Slavery was, believe it or not, it was often not just temporary, but it was voluntary, which is hard for us to fathom. But there was often security in being a slave because you knew how you were going to be fed and how you are going to be protected. So people would put themselves into slavery. It was an escape from poverty, provided some upward mobility. Ironically, slaves could not only own property, they could actually own other slaves. And they could become quite wealthy, serving as custodians and administrators and government officials, such that by the time of the New Testament, there's this class of kind of nouveau rich slaves that present a challenge to sort of the old money of Rome. Now, that's not to say there weren't abuses and fundamental problems with the practice. There absolutely were. And the, the gospel provided the kind of spark to upturn and upend all of that. It's just to say that this slavery is quite different from the race-based sort of chattel slavery that we knew and that the Bible expressly condemns as man-stealing. So for these who operated often more like indentured servants, what does he say to them? He says, don't be argumentative. Don't steal from your master, from your boss, but show good faith. 
I think there are applications for us there in the workforce, aren't there? We are not to be argumentative and contentious and regularly disagreeable at work. That doesn't commend the gospel. We're not to gripe about our boss behind his or her back. That doesn't commend the gospel. We're not to pad timesheets and expense reports. When it comes to work, we ought to ask ourselves, do I do merely the minimum required of me, or do I seek to be a blessing to those around me, to my employer, to my boss, to coworkers? And those are some good questions for us to think about. But stepping back and, and really just trying to take all these distinctives as a whole, uh, you know, I love to quote 80s music. There's an old line from that artist formerly known as Prince in that song Kiss, right? Act your age, not your shoe size. Perhaps you know that expression. Well, I don't know if Paul would like Prince, but I think he'd appreciate the expression, right? Act your age, not your shoe size. Which means if you're a young man this morning, Paul would say, act like a young man ought to act. Take life seriously. Take your faith seriously. Be responsible, right? Get rid of the remote control. Get rid of the game box. Get rid of whatever it is that takes productive time and energies away from you. Get rid of those things. Move out of the basement, right? Get a job. Bear some responsibility. Show some self-restraint. Grow up. Be a man. That's what it means to be a young man. I think that's what Paul, in so many words, is saying. If you're a young woman, he's saying, hey, listen, delight in the season and the gifts that God has given you. Don't chase after the values of the world, whether it's in the world's definition of beauty or the world's definition of a career. But cherish what? Cherish a gentle and quiet spirit, Paul would say. If you're getting into your 50s and beyond, don't spend your time wishing you were young and fit and beautiful, maybe like you were 20 years ago. Right? Live life, Paul's saying, in the present. Be the age you are. Recognize the importance of that in the life of the body. How you might contribute in so many ways to the health of the body. Right? So those are just, I think, some of the countercultural ways that community is to be distinct, whether we're talking age or gender. But before moving on, notice also in some ways where it's the same. Do notice in some ways where it's the same. So did you pick up how that word self-control keeps resurfacing? Right? Young men are to be self-controlled. Older, uh, sure, yes, young men are, verse 6. Younger women are, verse 5. Older men are, verse 2. And friends, self-control is profoundly countercultural. It was in Crete, right, a people who just celebrated bodily appetites. And self-control, that's countercultural today. Our culture says, if you want something, if you desire something, if it feels right, then it is right and you ought to have it. That's what culture says. Western culture values self-expression, not self-control. It values self-fulfillment, not self-restraint, self-denial. It values independence, not submission. And it was these very instincts, these very impulses that got us back to, into so much trouble back in Genesis 3. But it's not just the self-control that's to mark many of these groups. It's also submission. 
Notice that's not just to mark wives, it's also to mark bond servants. And that as well, a deeply countercultural idea. Again, wives toward husbands, bond servants towards masters. God's world, Paul is helping us to see, is one of order and one of authority. Which means submission, not surprisingly, is all over the Bible. Including children to parents, congregation to the elders, citizens to the state, slaves to masters, wives to husbands. Even Jesus in his earthly life submitted to the will of his father. That's not meant to be pitiable. That's meant to be beautiful. And the Bible nowhere apologizes for it. Now because the word is so misunderstood, I think submission, whether or not you're talking submission as a wife or submission as a worker, we tend to have more problems with the first than the second. Well, if you think of submission as a wife, that doesn't mean emptying your brain. It doesn't mean subservience. A wife's submission, submission is a thoughtful and derivative submission and it's subject to and defined by her submission to Christ. So she is not to be a doormat any more than her husband is to be an autocrat. Or not in the scriptures. Jesus explicitly removed self-exaltation from leadership and servility from some submission. And notice, women, there are limits to your submission. Limits Paul even highlights right here. So notice who women are to submit to. Not to all men, verse 5, but to whom? To their own husbands. So women submitting to their own husbands means they're not called to submit to every other husband. Not every other man in general. Certainly not girlfriends to boyfriends. If he hasn't said, I do, you're not to submit to him. You're also not to submit to one who's leading you in sin and asking you and requiring you to obviously sin. We're not called to submit to that because then we're not submitting to Christ as women. And it never calls wives to submit to abuse. So the Bible and the name of complementarity nowhere justifies a man abusing a woman, whether it's physical, whether or not it is verbal or emotional. And in the Bible, in the name of complementarity, it nowhere calls women to submit to that kind of abuse. It doesn't justify a man for it, doesn't call a woman to submit to it. That's where God gives you elders who can step in. That's where God, sometimes when necessary, ordains the state to step in when it has to. So whether it's in our gender differences or in those things that we actually share together, like self-control, submission, our community, Paul's saying, and all of this is meant to be countercultural. And why does he say that? Because that's what makes our community compelling. That's the reason. And that brings us again to our second and far briefer point. So what makes our community compelling? That's the question we want to ask. What makes it compelling? Well, notice for starters, it's intergenerational. Notice how it's intergenerational. So Paul wasn't segregating older and younger members into different services. He wasn't saying, if you like this kind of music, go to that service. If you like that kind of music, go to another one. Or if you're young and professional, you gather here. And if you're older and retired, you gather over there. Or all you who have white-collar jobs over here, all you with blue-collar jobs over there. right? Old and young men, old and young women bond servants and masters they did life together they rubbed shoulders together in this kind of intergenerational community the world it doesn't get it the world doesn't get it but when they see it they're fascinated by it 
They even respect it. And I think in that, Christ is commended in it. Because that's what we have in common. We can gather intergenerationally, not because we share so many things in common in the world, but because what? We share Christ in common. And it's that commonality in Christ that extols him and his work in our lives. But notice scattered throughout all this passage, there are these three purpose statements. I don't know if you caught that, these so that statements. Verse 5, we read that older women are to teach and train younger women in these things, all the things noted. Notice the end of verse 5. Paul doesn't say older men train younger women in these things because it accords with cultural norms. He doesn't ground it in whatever was culturally normative for the day. No, he grounds it so that, there's your purpose statement, the word of God may not be reviled. Or Titus is to be a model of sound speech and good works so that, verse 8, an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And bondservants are to be submissive, showing good faith, verse 10, so that in everything they may what? They may adorn, they make attractive the doctrine of God our Savior. Because friends, Countercultural community, Paul's helping us see, is compelling community. And that kind of community puts the world on notice. So, you know, on the way back from Sweden, my wife and I were reflecting on the trip. And one of the things that we did not anticipate, but we found so shocking and surprising and interesting, was how many comments we got about the fact that I opened my wife's door. So that simple thing, whether or not it's opening the car door when she's getting out or opening the door into the hotel lobby or whether or not I opened a door as we're heading into a mall for some other women who are right behind us. Every time I did it, I got a comment. We got a comment. They were struck by it. They were, you could tell they were somewhat confused by it, especially the non-Christian women. They didn't really know what I was doing for them, right? They were, yeah, they were confused. And one of the reasons why it just became apparent as we talked with Johnny and Anna about it is that Sweden, they've got no gender distinctions between men and women. There's no sense that men are to exalt women, that men are to provide and protect for women, that they're to show respect and deference toward women because they're women. Sweden has no sense of that. So when the elevator door opened, it was fascinating It was like this mob rush. We were in a busy hotel. This mob rush. Men didn't wait for for women. No, they just threw their elbows and they went right on in. And same with women. It was this mad race into the elevator. It was a little frightening, kind of horrifying. And they commented again because they saw something strange, something weird, but it was also attractive. And it's not that Erin can't get her door. Of course, my wife can get her door. But me doing that little thing for her, that practical expression of how I'm to love and to serve her, that tiny picture of how I'm called to lay down my life for her, when they saw that in action, they were struck by it. They took notice of it, and they found it, again, attractive. Now, our culture assumes that egalitarianism, right, sort of the evisceration of role between men and women and any gender distinctions, it assumes that somehow that leads to benevolent, servant-minded men. But friends, look around the world. Look at the sex trade. 
Look at the degradation of women into objects of sexual gratification. If we don't teach these things, men will either be passive or pugilistic, right? They'll be, they'll be aggressive. They'll, they'll be one or the other. The question is never, are we going to have male headship? It's what kind of headship are we going to have? For fallen men left to themselves, they sadly don't default to egalitarian notions of kindness. They don't default to sacrifice and service for the sake of others. That needs to be taught to men. And again, that's part of what they found in that little act of something as small as opening a door compelling. For the world may not like it when we talk about countercultural things, like submission or self-control, but they do find it, again, attractive when we live it. So unbelievers may be repelled by Christian teaching on headship and submission, but nonetheless, they're attracted by godly Christian marriages when they see them. Unbelievers who find Christianity morally restrictive and even repressive at the same time are going to be attracted to the good lives of Christians they know. Coworkers may resent the way that you don't yourself engage in all the off-color banter about the boss behind his or her back. But at the same time, when you refuse to do it, they respect it. Because countercultural community is compelling community. Now, maybe you've come this morning and you're not a believer. Uh, maybe you, you, you don't know Christ, you have no relationship with him, you're not part of a, of a Christian community. And this is also where Christianity is countercultural. Because in the world of Titus and Paul's day, you were basically born into a religious system. You didn't swap. But the beautiful thing about Christianity is that it offered, yes, an exclusive message. Jesus is the only way. And yet that message was inclusively offered to all, such that all who saw that in their own hearts they've rebelled against God. They don't live as God would have them to live. They want their own way every time, not God's way. And when they see that, and they see that sin for what it is, and when they learn that Jesus Christ came so that he could pay the penalty for those sins, so he could die on the cross for sinners and then was raised again from the grave victorious over sin so that all of us who repent and turn from our sins and trust in him can be saved. That's the inclusive message offered up to everyone. So if you've come and you're not a believer, I would encourage you to turn from your sin, repent, be part of a Christian community like this that could please God and make the gospel attractive. And how do we do that? Paul's saying, again, not by rejecting gender distinctions, not by making apologies for them, but by embracing them. It's not by wishing we were younger or wishing we were in a different season of life, but embracing the age and the season of life that God has given us, recognizing each of us as opportunities to serve in distinct and unique ways in the season God has given us. It's not by living alone. It's not by hanging out with people just like you, but admitting that we know, need those unlike us Right? We need a church family, an intergenerational church family. If we're to grow up into maturity, we need that family. We don't need more church growth strategies. Paul's saying the church simply needs to be the church. That's what it is. Discipling one another, cherishing one another, serving one another. That's how, in the words of Jesus, we become a city on a hill. 
a lamp on a stand. It's how we let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Because countercultural community is compelling community. Let's pray.